Hello and welcome to the latest weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And this week, there being no Simon Elliott anymore, sadly, as we reported last week, I'm delighted to say that I have another companion on this podcast who uh, has not been doing investment trusts for quite as long as Peter Spiller, who we had on last week, but is uh, certainly clocked up the best part of two decades, at least in this uh, specialist area we all love, and that is uh, Nick Greenwood, who is the manager of the MIGO Opportunities Investment Trust, which is a investment trust that only invests in other investment trusts. So he's uh, well qualified to speak with authority around all sorts of issues to do with investment trusts. So I'm very happy to have you on the podcast this week, uh, Nick. We uh, speak quite regularly, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your take on what's been happening. Uh, delighted to be here, and I think uh, I think I've nearly completed my third decade um, uh, doing a, nothing other than investment trusts. So, uh, yeah, veteran, I'm, I believe is the term they call me now. Splendid. Well, you and me alike, and we're going to kick off as normal by talking about the markets and how they've been moving this week. I don't know whether it's a good omen for the future or not, Nick, but in fact, the last five days, we're recording this on Friday lunchtime, have been pretty good, certainly by comparison with what we've seen so far this year. The uh, FTSE Closed Ended Investment Trust Index has actually risen every day this week so far, which hasn't happened for a long time. And the FTSE All Share Index has also done reasonably well, finishing the week somewhere slightly above 4,000, having started it below that level. Meanwhile, the average discount on the investment trust sector has uh, come in from the end of last week when uh, it looked like we might even be moving to an average double-digit discount. The average sector discount had reached 9.5 and was edging on towards 10 at one point. Uh, but that's reversed this week, and we've actually seen the average discount come in uh, reasonably sharply and is now just over 8. And overall, the investment trust index is down just under 15% this year compared to the Orsha index, which is down a little over 2.5%. Now, this may not have come a surprise to you, of course, because we've had an awful lot of gloom and doom around in the media and in the headlines. Only this week, we uh, saw the results of the latest Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey of global fund manager sentiment, what they're thinking about the world at the moment. And it has not been as gloomy a state of affairs on this measure since the global financial crisis. The great majority of fund managers now are saying that they expect a recession at some point before too long, which obviously won't be good for equity markets. And a similar percentage expect to see a decline in profits this year, in corporate profitability. And if that happens, that's bound to have an impact on the earnings that uh, are being reported by companies, uh, both Wall Street and in the UK. Uh, So far, those earnings have held up remarkably well. In fact, the consensus is that earnings on Wall Street will actually come in higher than last year. At least that's the message we've had so far. But we have a lot more company results to come in over the course of the next few days uh, as we round off the second quarter reporting season. Uh, Bond yields, meanwhile, have uh, stabilised. But the yield curve, the difference between two-year and 10-year US sovereign debt yields, remains slightly inverted. And that is one of uh, many indicators that we may be heading towards a recession. Certainly, that is what many professional investors think. But what's your take on where we are and how you see things in the investment trust sector at the moment as a whole? 
Well, I think you're right. There's an enormous amount of gloom about. And, you know, I often say to people, when was the last time you spoke to a bull? And people can't remember it. Many, many months. Um, so, you know, there's that much pessimism and depression and caution already in the market. It's not surprising that we're seeing a bit of a bounce. I think where we sort of differ from the consensus is that because there's so much debt in the system, um, modest interest rate rises will have a big effect on the economy and on, on the markets. And this whole process might be a little bit uh, shorter because, I mean, in previous generations, 75 basis points on interest rates wouldn't have had any effect at all. Now it has an enormous amount of effect because there is so much debt, personal, corporate and government. So we might get a, a sell-off, but at that point, you know, bad news is not popular with politicians. And um, I think there's every chance if it gets too bad, then then they will back off as, you know, recessions are not popular with the electorate and uh, politicians are, are tempted to kick the can down the road. So, um, yeah, not surprised we're seeing a bit of a bounce. I think, you know, we're in a scenario where we're probably looking to get money back into the market, having raised uh, an awful lot of cash over recent months. And there's, uh, there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, we're seeing extreme discounts in the medium and smaller size trusts. And we have a very significant number of our holdings trade north of the 30 discount. And we have a few that trade beyond 40% discount. And, um, you know, as we describe ourselves as a veteran, uh, I haven't seen uh, discounts this wide before, even during the, the 2008 crisis. So there's a lot of opportunities if you are focusing on special situations in the trust market, which is which is what we do. Indeed, I should make that clear that what uh, your trust does is you're looking for, as you say, special situations which are normally kind of areas of the investment trust sector which don't always uh, grab all the headlines, some of the smaller trusts in particular where there's uh, significant discount movements and so on. So it's a general rule you won't be investing in the larger trusts that we uh, spend a lot of time talking about, but uh, you're helping to uh, keep the market honest, I suppose. That's one way I like to put it, or perhaps you'd like to put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, no, that'll do. Yeah. (laughs) What you say about discounts is interesting and obviously uh, very important to understanding what's going on at the moment. Do you think that this widening of discounts is not just about what's happening to the underlying performance of the investment trusts and their portfolios? Is it also something to do with liquidity and how much trading activity there is in some shares, particularly the ones at the smaller end of the market capitalization range, which is the area where you spend most of your time looking? Yeah, I think what it is, what we're seeing is that the wealth managers, the big chains, who were the natural bars investment trusts up until just a few years ago, have retreated from the sector because they're now too big to be able to get in and out of investment trust stocks. And that the marginal buyer is now the, the self-directed investor, you know, the uh, retired company director from Bristol who reads Money Week and um, buys shares in MyGo on Monday morning through his Hargreaves Lansdowne SIP. Since the war, you know, since the invasion of Ukraine, really they've sat out. You know, there's very, very low risk tolerance. Um, I think they have been quite active in some of the bigger names and some of the safer names, but some of the smaller, more interesting stuff, they're sitting on the sidelines. So what you have is very, very low turnovers. But what turnover you have, it tends to be shares dripping out of the big wealth management chains who are just slowly exiting the sector. So small trades, you know, if the market makers are collecting £10,000 worth of stock a day and 50000 a week. By the end of the month, they've got 200 grand's worth of stock. And that's probably too... And bear in mind, they'll make a, a market in a whole range of investment trusts. That's too much money and therefore down the prices go. And they keep going down because there aren't any buyers around. And actually, what actually happens in practice, and we've seen it in one or two examples we've been buying recently, the share price goes down and then goes down and then goes down. Then people think something's wrong and then then actually do sell into an unwilling market and drive prices down even further. So I think that's typical of what we're seeing in the medium and smaller 
size trust. And things will bounce quite quickly because when that technical position rolls the other way, there isn't really any stock around to give to people who are trying to buy. And therefore, that will drive prices up quite quickly. So we, we have a sort of a, a bit of a technical situation in my world anyway. That's a very good point you make. And of course, you could draw a number of lessons from that. One is you could say that uh, well, we know that investment trust share prices uh, tend to be volatile, and in narrow markets, they'll be more volatile. But at the same time, you don't want to necessarily be alarmed if you see what looks like quite a sharp move. You don't want to be panicked mm. into selling out just because you've seen that move. It may reflect those technical factors that you've just been talking about. We can see uh, evidence of some of that volatility if we look at the list of movers, risers and fallers this week in the investment trust sector. I'm looking at a table here of the biggest moves over the last week as of lunchtime today. And looking down, first of all, the NAV movers, we can see at the top are a number of small cap trusts. We've got Artemis Alpha is up uh, just over 10% this week in NAV terms. And some other small cap trusts, BlackRock, Throgmorton, I can see Henderson Smaller Companies and Montanara European Smaller Companies. They're all up strongly, 7 or 8% this week. While if we look at the Share price movements, well, that's a slightly different picture. We see some of the same names, but actually the biggest moves in share price, which therefore by definition reflects the trusts that have seen their discounts narrow most, it's largely dominated by quite specialist trusts, the kind that you're interested in, Nick, and uh, notably also a number of private equity trusts, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, and in terms of the worst performers, well, in NAV terms, we are still talking about more specialist trusts. The Chinese trusts, which have had a good rally, they've sold off this week by little, but these are only 1% or 2% during the course of the week. And the most uh, dramatic moves, 5% or more, there's only a couple of them, and they are in uh, very specialist vehicles that uh, we don't need to worry about too much. Uh, and in share price terms, well, similar sort of story. There's some special situations here as well. And uh, one or two uh, debt funds, I can see, uh, also one or two private equity funds, though, the more specialist ones. But mostly it's debt funds. I think they're reflecting the changing dynamics in the bond market. Right at the top of the list of largest share price movers, actually, is a very small investment trust called Doric Nimrod Air One, ticker DNA, which is up more than 60%. And that operates in a very specialist niche area, which is aircraft leasing. But that actually is one a sector that you do have an interest in. I know that. You don't own that particular trust, but you do own another one, which is uh, called Amadeo Air Force Plus, ticker AA4. So while we're on that subject, just tell us what's been going on in that sector. It's a very small sector. We rather fear that one or two of those trusts might be going out of business altogether, as I think Doric Nimrod Air One is going to do when it's uh, sold its last aeroplane. It's been a bit of a disaster sector over the last couple of years, but maybe we've reached the bottom here for those that are going to survive. Tell us what um, you think about that sector and why you're holding in one of those trusts. Well, I think we've passed the bottom. Unfortunately, we didn't get enough shares in the one that we're buying, although we bought plenty, but um, we bought what was available. So you know, that was uh, a reasonable number of shares. I mean, two things have changed. I mean, go back not that many months. Some of these leasing companies that typically owned maybe half a dozen planes, often the A380, a lot of these were just parked in the desert gathering dust and weren't used. And we've had a, a dramatic increase in demand for air travel as COVID has become less severe and in many countries is no longer a, a daily issue. The other thing is that the new models of wide-body planes produced by both Airbus and Boeing, for different reasons, aren't being supplied. So if you take the one that we own, which is AA4, 
basically they own mainly 380s. Um, Emirates haven't been delivered the replacements and have actually said that they expect now to be flying the A380s for many more years because the likelihood is there are more delays at the aircraft manufacturers. They'll scrap those orders and run with the A380s instead. So we've gone from a position where the assets, although Emirates were paying you know, what they own, the assets were just sat there in a, in a I was going to say a car park or whatever the aircraft equivalent is, to now, you know, probably destined to be scrapped for the for the landing gear and the engines, which are the two bits of, of value, to now being used and pumping out a lot of three cash flow to the owners of the planes. So there's been a dramatic change. And we would just looked at the the likely income on the particular trust we looked at. And we sort of came up with a figure of 39, 40p in dividends over the next few years. And, you know, a residual value of perhaps the planes about 19p a share. So we were turning 30p into 60 over a period of time. It would be watching paint dry in, in our view. And that's a lot of what we do. But if you look at those returns, you know, 30 to 60 is attractive. Unfortunately, the story's got even more positive and, started, and people have started buying and Emirates have decided on the first A380 out of out of all the aircraft leasing companies to come to the end of its lease just to buy the plane for a lot more than what people actually thought the shares were worth. Um, and as you saw that in, in the share price. So it's nice to have got it right, but it'd be nice to have collected a few more shares before the story became well known. You know, and a bit of background, we, we see overlooked and unloved. And these shares aren't as overlooked as they were when we started buying. So the one you own, AA4, that is called uh, Amadeo Air 4 Plus. Mm-hmm. And the one which announced that Emirates was buying back its last remaining plane was uh, Direct Nimrod Air 1, ticker DAA. Yeah. yeah. At this point in the podcast, we normally pause to uh, run through corporate developments and fundraising news. As it happens, there isn't a great deal of that uh, on either count this week. And so we're going to do things slightly differently from normal, as the pattern established with Simon in the past. So the only couple of news items I think that are worth mentioning here are the announcement from ECOFIN US Renewables Infrastructure Trust, that's ticker R-N-E-W, which has uh, announced that the portfolio managers, uh, three portfolio managers, Jerry Polachek, Matthew Ordway and Prashanth Prakash, have resigned from their roles in order to move on to launch a new venture. We don't know what that is, or indeed the circumstances behind this one. But these three uh, co-founded the private renewable energy investment business that ECOFIN started in 2016 and have been the dedicated portfolio managers of the trust since its launch in December 2020, i.e. that is just over 18 months ago. So this is a not insignificant announcement uh, and the market reaction is not perhaps a terrible surprise. We don't know the whole story, but it certainly looks like an irritation and possibly embarrassment for the board of the trust, which... uh, oversaw a placing only two months ago in May, uh, which raised $13 million. That was below the target, uh, or the upper range of the target of $25 million. So that wasn't entirely successful, but it is uh, still an awkward situation. The company says that while it looks for a new lead portfolio manager, its 17-strong investment team and senior leadership will continue to oversee the management of the trust, uh, which is now fully invested. The shares, as I said, have been taking a bit of a hit. They are down from a high point in dollar terms of $1.07 in April. And they're now, after this announcement, they've fallen back to around 97 98 cents, which is, in other words, below the recent placing price and indeed the original issue price. In sterling terms, slightly different because of the way that the pound has depreciated against the, the dollar quite markedly in the last couple of months. Uh, so the high point in the shares for sterling uh, investors was 87p and that share price uh, as of Friday was 
uh, somewhere around 7980p. So still a marked down performance. Similarly, we've heard from uh, LXI REIT, uh, ticket LXI, that following its um, to completion of its merger with Secure Income REIT, it has managed to fully hedge the cost of its acquisition facility using an interest rate cap, and as a result of which 100% of the enlarged fund's debt is now either fixed or capped, uh, with the same maximum all-in rate of 4.1% per annum. So they've brought down the uh, overall cost of financing, which was one of the merits that was put forward to justify this uh, this merger. Moving on to fundraising, well, let's say there's been very little except to perhaps report that uh, Hickel Infrastructure is wasting no time in spending the $160 million it raised last week by buying a 40% stake in uh, a passive mobile tower infrastructure firm that uh, covers 98% of New Zealand's population. The income from this particular acquisition is indexed linked to inflation and lasts for 20 years, with further options to extend for two more 10-year periods. Hickel added that the acquisition would account for 7% of its net asset value and take its proportion of its portfolio invested in digital infrastructure up to 9%. If you want to see a summary of the other main news items this week, I should remind you that uh, you can do that by logging onto the Trust and Data page for Money Circle subscribers. Uh, that lists all the announcements of the week, as well as the main movers in share price and NAV terms, and covers off a brief summary of all the main news items. In terms of results... They also are mentioned there, but I think I'm going to highlight the fact that there have been a few significant uh, large investment trust results out this week, and I'm not going to go through them all again here because we have Nick here to comment on some of them at least. But we've had uh, results from Polar Capital Technology, which NAV to the uh, end of April 30th. It fell by 7.7% over that period compared with a 0.9% decline in its benchmark, which is a global technology index. Uh, the share price fell slightly further over the course of that year as the discount widened out to more than 10% from 5.3% uh, at the end of the previous period. As we know, it's been a pretty torrid time for the technology trusts, uh, but they did have a remarkable period in the previous year. And the main detractor in, in the case of both capital technology, which raises an interesting general point about technology trusts, is the fact that it was underweight in two of the biggest components of its benchmark index, namely Apple and Microsoft, both of which performed very strongly over that period, both of which account for something like 15% of the benchmark index. And uh, the argument that Ben Rogoff and his team make is that uh, while 10% of their fund is invested in each of those companies, it's still an underweight. It would represent a very concentrated portfolio if they were had a full weighting in the index. But that's one of the difficulties of using uh, index benchmarks. The weightings are determined by the market. They may not accord to uh, common sense or what the fund managers want to do. The strengthening of the dollar against sterling was also a significant factor in the results. We also heard from Herald Investment Trust in this context, ticker HRI, which produced interim results for the six months to 30th of June, a more recent period. And their NAV, reflecting what's been happening in the wider sector, was down 25.1% in that period, compared with 22.4% for its benchmark, which is a composite index of both uh, UK and US technology indices. The company said that it experienced negative returns across all the regions it invested in, rather between 20 and 33%, including North America, which is about a quarter of the NAV, Asia, which is 11%, emerging markets, uh, Eastern Europe and the UK, 46%. The Herald repurchased 1.6 million shares for a total outlay of 32.7 million. 
but has cash of 114 million at the moment. Uh, we've also had results this week from a number of private equity trusts from uh, Mighton UK Microcap, BlackRock Throgmorton, all of which we're going to talk about in a moment, and also we've heard from Tufton Oceanic Assets, ticker SHIP, and uh, Baker Steel Resources, ticker BSRT. Finally, there's been a, a swathe of results from specialist debt sector trusts, and we're going to talk about those as well as we continue our conversation with Nick Greenwood, the manager of MyGo Opportunities Trust. Uh, now, technology is not, not a sector I think that you've invested much, Nick, but uh, while we're discussing results, is it something you might actually look at, given that these trusts have now moved to uh, what by their standards are quite significant discounts? Um, as we said, Polar Capital Technology uh, has been out beyond 10% at one point, though they do have a, uh, a policy of buying back shares to uh, limit the discount. And Herald is on a much wider discount, a very different kind of animal, but it's on a much wider discount of getting off at 25%. But are these something that might actually be of interest to you as the market unfolds? Would you ever see yourself buying one of these technology trusts? Um, yes. I mean, everything becomes overlooked and unloved. And there's such a variety of asset classes you can buy in the sector. So, you know, at the moment, um, we're, we, well, we've recently sold out of shipping because it became extremely hot. And we flipped a lot of the money to buy technology, which has been in a, in a bear market for a couple of years. So inevitably, there will be times when technology out of favour. Historically, because we were owned largely by wealth managers who could do all the larger trusts themselves and left us as a subcontraction vehicle to deal with the more interesting but more special situation stuff, we would have probably left those trusts alone. I think going forward, like many investment trusts, the typical owner is the self-directed private uh, investor who probably can't necessarily do the, the large cap stuff themselves in the way that a branch of Rathbones or Bruins could do in the past. So I think the reason we've avoided them in the past, I think, is is fading. And going into the future, we will probably have the odd few things that are perhaps more mainstream when we have a bit of conviction. Okay, it's too early to say where they might be, I guess. When you're sort of scanning the market, do you start with the discounts or do you start actually with the performance? Where do you look and how do you look at things? We, we tend to start by talking to people. I mean, our style really is to talk to, you know, whether that be brokers, fund managers. We have an intense range of meetings. A lot of things just sort of fall out of these meetings. So the latest purchase which is a fixed interest lender, which I can't name because we haven't announced it in the fact sheets yet. It was just literally a case of a broker saying, well, the shares are very weak. What do you think? We didn't know it. And the shares fell even further to a, to a 36 discount. So we um, went in and saw the manager and just to see what had gone wrong. And and the reality is not a lot had gone wrong. It's just the, the, the scenario I described where there was you know very low turnover and what turnover was selling. In this case, there was genuinely a seller. Who needed to sell, and when you when you have a genuine committed seller in this kind of market, you know investment trust shares can fall a lot. So and that's fairly typical where we get the ideas from. You know, we would wouldn't buy something on a big discount unless we thought the NAV was going up, because you know a wide discount can be a bit of a value trap, and you know there has to be a catalyst for change. We mentioned Herald. I mean, Herald very often trades on a very wide discount, but we can't actually see a catalyst for that to change. Therefore, the catalyst is, is incredibly important as well. And if we can't identify a catalyst, which will cause the discount to narrow, then we'll often leave alone. Right. And when you talk about catalysts, what you mean by that is you mean either some change in strategy or some change in uh, the external environment or... Yeah, something that um, will change the environment and that will cause the discount to narrow. So a good example is that for years, you may have avoided family controlled trusts where you know one family has enough shares to block any kind of corporate action. But then sometimes when that family is coming towards a generational handover, basically you can see that the new generation coming up won't want to run the, the trust in the old school way. 
and that you know a different approach will be taken, which means that the shares may not trade on a 30 or 40 discount anymore. So you know, generational change in a family-controlled trust is one example. A discount control mechanism, the one that we, we saw the other day, has a discount control mechanism. Unless it trades below a five discount over a period of time, they have to give 25% of the money back. Well, they're trading much wider than that at the moment. And I think the comment was that they've never traded narrower than five. So sometimes within the company structure, there is a catalyst, there is something that will trigger the narrowing of the discount. But actually, market tends to only look 18 months ahead because fund managers judge sort of by the minute. And if the catalyst is two or three years away, then a lot of people probably won't buy it because they may not be in a job in two or three years' time. We sort of make sure our, our shareholders understand that um, you know it can be like watching paint dry. If we can see a catalyst at two or three years down the line and the shares are trading on a, on a steep discount to its fundamental value, then we will pick up the shares, we'll sit and we'll wait and we will watch paint dry. Well, we're on something of discounts. So last week we had, as I say, we were talking to Peter Spiller on the podcast and uh, he, of course, is a very strong advocate of the fact that investment trusts that uh, issue a lot of shares in the secondary market, they should be very assiduous about protecting by implementing whatever discount control commitments they've made. Do you share his view about that? Do you think that we should have seen more trusts this year doing buybacks uh, if they're share prices have moved beyond whatever kind of discount target they might have. Yes, I mean, we have an informal discount control mechanism on our shares. I think sometimes if you make it too rigid, the market will just game you. So, I mean, I think we spent the first couple of months of this year issuing new shares. Market sentiment is the other way at the moment. So we've been buying back a lot of shares. And you know, we, we tend to trade not far from par. Uh, we have drifted off to a wide discount for us, um, simply because the NAV has been going up the last week or so, but the market hasn't spotted it yet. Okay, so we'll move on. We're now we'll talk about uh, smaller companies. You mentioned them already. Um, yeah. Obviously, we've had some announcements this week. We had some results from uh, BlackRock Throgmorton Trust, ticker THRG, mm-hmm. uh, which has been a very strong performer until this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had yeah. some interim results, 31st of May. And, of course, it hasn't gone so well this year, should we say. Net asset value total return minus 26% over that six-month period of 31st of May against their uh, index decline of uh, 9%. And the share price uh, down 31% as the shares have moved from a premium to a discount. Rather unusual to see a smaller company's trust uh, trading at a premium, which it has done for a while. Uh, but now it's gone to a discount. As you mentioned, you do own some smaller company trusts, or smaller medium cap trusts anyway. You have an interest in Henderson Opportunities, I think. And you're also in some micro cap investment trusts. And this week we heard from Mighton UK micro cap, ticker M-I-N-I. Annual results, the year to 31st of April. Total return, NAV down 13% against a benchmark of 5.8%. And the share price down 17% as a discount also widened. Now, you own another microcap trust, I think, uh, which is the uh, River Mercantile one. Now, what's your thoughts about smaller companies and microcap in particular at this point in the cycle, uh, given what we've been saying about liquidity and discounts and so on? I think... UK small caps have been in a very difficult place. I think the expectation is that we'll, we'll have a, a rash of profit warnings in the area. But I think post that, the sector will be looking cheap. We, we have actually reduced um, quite aggressively the UK small cap exposure, but we have kept exposure to micro caps. River Mercantile, the team there have quite a growthy style and um, performed very well whilst we've owned the shares, but had, had, you know, a bit like the Frogmorton Trust had a tougher time this year. That's one where we would be looking, you know, because the, the shares are fairly threatened as they come back a long way. That's a position we'd probably rebuild. I mean, we do like there to be a macro reason for owning the shares. And I think microcap is getting extremely cheap because so many people 
can't operate at the bottom end of the market, a bit like with a lot of investment trusts and a lot of companies, industrial companies with market caps of 100 or, or 200 mil. You know, the natural buyers, you know, some of the institutions just can't go that low anymore. And therefore, you can end up very similar to how I described small and medium-sized investment trusts, shares falling way below their, their fundamental value. And you know what we think in the in the longer term is that if the stock market can't properly value assets, the real world will come and take those assets on the cheap, at the cheap, but at a big premium to existing share prices. And of course, if you can buy UK microcap investment trusts trading on very wide discounts, you know you've got a discount upon a discount to unravel at some point in the future. So it's an area that you know we do get a rash of profit warnings and 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 it continues to sink. We will be looking to rebuild. The other thing is we have a macro view, but we always like there to be a special situation. And the special situation on Riven Mercantile Microcap is that uh, whenever the portfolio is over 100 million, they will hand money back. They take the view that uh, having a, a pot of more than 100 million makes it very difficult to trade and get in and out of companies at the very smallest level. And therefore, you, know, you can sometimes, and we caught it very nicely in post the pandemic, you can buy in at a deep discount. The shares have a good run. The sector has a good run. The discount, you get the double whammy as the NAV rises and the, uh, the discount narrows. So you get a very, very powerful move. And then they hand you back some money at NAV, having recently bought in at a big discount. So, And a lot of people in the market don't seem to understand that the, the very unusual company structure that River Bell Microcap has. So that's definitely one we'll be looking to rebuild. I don't know where you think it's at, but uh, according to the AIC numbers, at least it's trading on around a 19% discount. Yep, something in that region, yeah. And the Micron one is on a 7% discount, despite not mm. uh, doing quite the same thing as you've been describing mm. in terms of the uh, capping the size of the trust. So you think there's some potential there, but I mean, basically, this is the price you pay for owning these microcap trusts is that they are going to be very volatile mm. and uh, they are going to move around a lot. And uh, I mean, River Mercantile UK microcap was up very, very strongly, wasn't it, for a period? And now it's come a long way back down. But that would be certainly one that uh, to watch out for. In general terms, though, I mean, small cap trusts don't generally trade close to par. We did see Throgmorton trading at a premium for quite a long time. And uh, Addition, uh, which is another one in, in the same sort of area, slightly different strategy, slightly higher up the market cap scale, that also uh, trades around par with a discount policy. What would you say would be a kind of ceiling for small cap discounts on average? Well, I think that there's every chance that some of them can trade at par over the medium term. The reason small cap trusts got out to wide discounts was that, you know, certainly in the 90s and the 2000s, we had a massive oversupply of small cap trusts. I think we had 40 or 50 of them that had been launched, many of them launched in the mid 90s. And I think the market's just got used to small cap trusts trading on a wide discount when the reason has gone. But, you know, very often, once the market's got a feel that, you know, a small cap trust should trade on a 15 discount, that can be quite enduring. But supply is steadily being taken out. And um, once supply and demand gets into equilibrium, then there's no reason why that sector can't trade much narrower than it has in the past. Okay, so before we go on, I just mentioned the fact that in the Moneymakers Circle this week, we have one of our in-depth profiles of value and indexed property, ticker VIP, which is an interesting property vehicle, which has recently changed its mandate somewhat to focus particularly on properties with index-linked uh, leases, either wholly or to a significant extent. And we also have our usual summary of all the most important announcements of the week regarding investment trust with links to the relevant announcements. So you do, it's, a, it's a one-stop shop if you want to track down any announcement that we have or have not covered this week. I've also added some thoughts on uh, the outlook for the UK equity income sector in the current climate.
So let's move on now and talk about the very interesting subject of private equity trusts. Nick, we've had some results this week from a number of private equity trusts as it happens. We obviously have heard from uh, 3i Group. Uh, We've also heard from MB Private Equity Partners, ticker MBPE, Harbourvest Global Private Equity, uh, ticker HVPE. So let's just talk about what's been happening in the private equity sector. Obviously, this has been uh, pretty much at the centre of the storm of widening discounts. I mean, they just uh, everybody a year ago was saying these things must start to narrow soon. But in fact, it's got slightly worse this year. So tell us what your approach to this sector is and uh, why you own the private equity trusts that you do own. Perhaps you might start off by telling us which ones those are. Well, the two big ones are NB Private Equity and Oakley. Well, I think there's two things going on. One that, you know, some early stage investments, Klarna being a great example within Chrysalis, have had big, big falls. But that early stage was a bit of a bubble. And what we've seen is that pretty well all of the private equity trusts have been marked down together. We don't see, or we may be just beginning to see, a sorting out between the wheat and the chaff. Because certainly, you know, the way that Oakley values its assets involves old-fashioned things like profit and, and cash flow and things like that. And therefore, when they sell something, it comes at a, at a very big premium. So I think part of it is the market is looking at some of the falls in, in the markets in the, in the second quarter, and just assuming that these trust NAVs will fall. And some will, but many won't. So you've got a, the first inefficiency is no sorting out between the wheat and the chaff. So the stronger ones that are not involved in early stage stuff that's difficult to value have fallen just the same as the ones that are focused in that area. And when I spoke earlier that there was a, a quite a few trusts in our portfolio with a, a 40% discount or more, many of those are actually in the, um, in the, in the private equity sector. But I think you know, that's one reason. But I think the probably more important reason is that there's been a change in how investors, such as the big world managed chains or open-ended funds, multi-asset funds that use investment trusts, in declaring the underlying costs um, when they report those costs to their own investors. So, for example, private equity is incredibly expensive, although being, you know, a lot of these Trusts have been incredibly successful and profitable, but you know Oakley Capital, for example, has an OCF of six or seven percent. I don't know the, the exact figure, but if you just put two percent of your portfolio into into one of those funds, it would add fourteen basis points to the figure you have to declare to your own investors on your own product information. And a lot of those products are marketed on on being you know good value, and very often themselves have OCFs of maybe one percent or less. So for a whole range of traditional owners, a lot of these trusts have become unbuyable. And I think, you know, what you have is the scenario I mentioned earlier where very low turnover, but what turnover there is, is, is a bit of selling and that's driving prices down a, a bit. I think here in private equity, you're getting real selling from, you know, the wealth managers and the, and the product providers who have reacted to the change in the methodology that's been imposed by just selling out some of the more expensive trusts, the ones that have high OCFs. So one of our themes is to own uh, investment trusts with high OCS because they are falling to extreme discounts. This period will pass. And if it doesn't and the, the discounts don't narrow, remember that the real world will always find a way of taking these assets into a position where they can be properly valued. So, you know, f- for example, when we had a forestry trust trading at an extreme discount, an Australian hedge fund came in and, and made a takeover bid for the lot. So it may not happen in the next year or 18 months, but there will be a solution to this problem. Do you think there's anything that the investor trusts themselves can do? I mean, we've heard one or two of them, such as Pantheon, so on, talking about making 
extra efforts to bring the discounts in, if you like. But there's a limit to how much they can buy back shares, for example. And -hmm. there's a limit to what they can actually do. So do you think this is really a problem of the market and its perceptions or these technical factors you mentioned, that they all appear so expensive to wealth managers and they don't dare report them? Is there anything the investment trust themselves could do to help things? I mean, let's take Oakley as an example. Um, I think it's it's difficult because I think they would have been doing it already. So maybe they have to rethink the the capital structure. Maybe they have to become a different sort of vehicle. But that's something that wouldn't be taken lightly. But if we're sit, sitting here in eighteen months' time, and you know the Oakleys and the MB Private Equities are trading on thirty or forty discounts, they will be coming under pressure from the owners of those trusts to look at some kind of vehicle which which is valued at much closely to the um to the fundamental value of the trust private equity is you know is inherently expensive so the options are limited and that's that's why there hasn't been a, a swift solution to this and in terms of the private equity trusts that you do look at you prefer the ones which actually make direct uh, investments rather than the yeah I mean, we, we we value the visibility we have on the underlying portfolio so uh, pantheon for example w- will own a lot of private equity funds so you get much more diversification but you do tend to get the industry experience well, we prefer something like an Oakley, for example, where we can take a, a view at the 20 or 30 companies that they actually own. And there's a, there's plenty of disclosure. And therefore, we can get closer to the portfolio with, with those sorts of vehicles. And just on the subject of Oakley, uh, which is a, a trust that I've been looking at, it's a very interesting one. They got themselves a bit of a black mark a few years ago because of the way uh, I think they issued some shares at a discount. I can't remember exactly what the story was. But do you think uh, they're kind of through that phase, if you like? Would that be a fair uh, question to ask? Yeah, that was part of the rationale for buying into Oakley a year or two ago. Um, they exactly as you said, they raise money by issuing shares at a discount. Now, that's something you never do in the investment trust world because you'll lose all the investment trust followers. So, yeah, they definitely had a black mark against them. But I think they recognised what the problem was and how to go about it in the future. And we took the view that they genuinely changed their their spots and understood the problem. And you know. Ever since we've owned it, then we've not had any of these corporate governance issues. And they've said many, many times that uh, they'll never issue stock at a discount again. So, um, yeah, I think that is um, a good example of a catalyst where the catalyst was a change in corporate governance actions or attitudes, but would, would take a year or two to sort of feed through into the share price. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about some specialist trusts, because I say this is more the area where we would expect to find you uh, most active, if you like. But uh, let's talk about Baker Steel Resources Trust, ticker BSRT. They were in the news this week because they have uh, signed an agreement to sell one of their interests in a gold project. So tell us about Baker Steel Resources Trust. That also trades on a discount at the moment, but it's uh, in what you would have thought would be a good sector in resources sector. But we have seen a lot of sell-offs in the mining and metals recently on fears of uh, presumably recession or economic slowdown and China concerns and so on. Tell us about your thinking about uh, Baker Steel Resources Trust. Yeah, and Baker Steel is a very small trust, but it punches above its weight. It has probably getting on for a dozen different projects. And the one you're referring to was Bilbo's in Zimbabwe. So they basically find an interesting prospect. They use their intellectual capital and often other people's money to get the development work done or the, the surveys, etc., the studies that are needed. And the model historically is once you've completed all those permissions, then you sell the whole project on to a multinational who will then actually physically build the mine. So they start off with a field somewhere, in effect, and then by the time their involvement in the project finishes, you know, maybe five years down the line, it's all ready to go for big business to buy and just move in and and produce um, fairly quickly. Quite diversified. I mean, they try and focus on 
metals that are used in the electrification of the planet. So you know, you've got all sorts of things, whether that be silver or, or tungsten or copper. And what we saw this week was the announcement that they've sold Bilbo's to Caledonia Mining, who are you know fairly big in in Zimbabwe. So and in this case, they've taken shares in Caledonia in exchange for the mine. But it's classic of what they do in that you know that now that mine is ready to go. Big business now owns it, and they'll get shares up front, and they will get royalties as well on that project. So as the projects develop, they they will increasingly have a lot of cash flowing back. But it really is a paint-drying one because these projects take a a long, long time to come to fruition. It's interesting because for such a small trust to be involved in such big projects or actually get control of such big projects, I mean, they have a tungsten mine, which they're in the process of of developing down in Devon, which will be um, the third biggest mine in the world once complete. And it'll be, you know, given the geopolitical issues we have, it'll be the uh, the largest mine in, in what will be the Western world. You know, these, these are vast projects, yet they manage to get involved and bring these through, despite the fact that they're, they're, they're such a small vehicle. Indeed. But the shares, I mean, they were trading briefly at a premium, I think, weren't they, uh, about last Round about par, yeah. They got up to just under a pound. And at that point, we were, we were happy to sell into the market because everyone got very excited about mining stocks. And, um, you know, obviously, as you've seen, mining stocks have struggled a bit, mainly concerned about the, the slowdown in China, which will, which will reduce demand. But now they're on a discount, what, about 20%, something like that? They, yeah, I think probably slightly wider than that. But you would expect them to bounce around 20 25% at this point in time because, you know, the, as they're developing mines, you know, the, the, the development of mines will slow down simply because of the fact that the mining sector is quite quiet at the moment. So it is a little bit of, you know, you do have to be able to watch paint dry on that one. You also have an interest in uh, uranium, which is another small but specialist sector in the investment trust world. I think you uh, own Geiger Counter and... Uh, I think you also own something called Yellow Cake. Yep, yeah. Geiger Counter owns mines or developing mines in the uranium sector. Yellow Cake physically owns uranium. So it's quite a good mix to have have both. We've heard some interesting things going on in the nuclear power industry, at least in the last few weeks, not surprisingly after the Ukraine invasion that uh, governments are re-evaluating their approach to nuclear power. I don't think the Germans are going to go back to it because as long as the Greens are in government there. But in terms of the UK, we've seen moving towards more progress on Sizewell C. And uh, the French have, meanwhile, renationalized the last bit of the EDF that they don't own. So, I mean, it does seem that the strategic case for nuclear, and therefore by extension uranium, is uh, gathering momentum. And is that anything to do with why you own these things, or is it more, much more specific than that? No, I think this is probably more of a top-down view. Basically, since the accident at Fukushima in 2011, no one's really been looking for uranium. And for most of that period, the uranium price has been around $25. But to develop a new mine, you need the price to be more like 80. So, you know, a lot of the existing mines are have, have been worked out and no new uranium mines or very few uranium mines are to come online in the, in the near future. So you do wonder where all the uranium is going to come from for some of these projects. Not so much new projects like Sizewell, because uranium is not a, a rare mineral, but it's the length of time it takes to go from an idea to actually an operating mine, you know, at least seven to 10 years. But then Sizewell, for example, is probably presumably at least a seven-year project, so that won't be an issue. So the effect on the uranium price of the new reactors that are being built and being planned is is minimal. What's really interesting is that so many um, reactors are being 
kept on for for another five or ten years. So, or as we find in Japan, as soon as you're getting very high energy bills, then the the anti nuclear feeling has has dissipated a certain amount, and and they are bringing reactors back online. But when you're bringing your reactor back online, or just not shutting it down, they won't have been buying the uranium they need for the next five or ten years because they thought they were going to shut. So that is probably the area where you you, you get the biggest bounce in demand. So it's literally a case of. You know, no one's been looking for a metal for for years. I mean, it's it's the old saw of you know the cure for low prices is low prices because nobody goes and finds the stuff. And then when there is demand, as we're seeing now, as as nuclear is going back into the mainstream, you can't just magic up a uranium mine. It'll be years before they they come online, and therefore there's every scope for uranium to be squeezed higher. What we're seeing at the moment is it just seems to be trading with with energy. So energy was weak on Wall Street last night, and therefore. The uranium stocks are lower. Where this is really is a, a structural change, rather than you know, I mean, you know, people are building more of these things. It's going to take a much bigger share of the power market. It shouldn't really be bouncing around with the oil price. But sometimes these correlations become enduring. So yeah, it looks to be a great opportunity in, in the medium to longer term. Because I'm just looking at the uh, you know the five year history here, and I mean this thing normally has been trading pretty close to power even at a premium, and this is a good example of one that's really um, sold off quite sharply. I mean, what kind of discount yeah. is it on today? I mean, would you say yesterday the NAV was about forty six, and the shares are trading at about forty, so sort of in in the sort of fifteen mark. But it will move around quite a lot because a portfolio of uranium mines is almost a bit like a warrant on its own. So the NAV of Geiger counter will fly around a lot and therefore the discount in that situation is, is less relevant because you know when the when the NAV is flying around at 10, 20 p in a month or so and, and down again, the fact that it's on a discount of five or three or whatever it is is is, is less relevant in, in this particular situation. Right. So are you kind of implying there that, you know, the market is not always, you mentioned this before in another context, you know, the market is not always uh, entirely efficient, shall we say, in terms of uh, share prices necessarily keeping up to date with the latest uh, NAVs? Well, no, I mean, and the the market seems to be getting ever less efficient in the investment trust market. And that's basically what we do for a living is just exploit the the inefficiencies in the closed-ended world, simplistically trying to buy stuff at the wrong price. Indeed. That can never be wrong, can it? Let's talk then about shipping. You mentioned that you'd uh, mm. you'd sold out of shipping. Uh, we heard this week we had an NAV update from Tufton Oceanic Assets, ticker SHIP, S-H-I-P, uh, NAV up 4.8% over the quarter to the 30th of June, at least in uh, dollar terms. Shipping's been very strong, at least was very strong last year. So tell us your thinking on that one. Yeah, I think it's probably as good as it's going to get. The reason we bought it was, I mean, we'd, we'd done a couple of meetings with the team and we were impressed with them. But then when COVID happened, I mean, the market view was nobody would be sending any containers anywhere ever again. And even if they tried to, all the crew were all in the wrong places because they couldn't sail a ship um, halfway across the road and then fly back to get the next one. You could no longer uh, do that. And therefore, it did look quite bleak and tough and traded on an extreme discount. But then it went to, you know, with all the log jams and the shortages. And part of the shortages are technical in that, um, you know, shipping is an industry that's needing to develop, you know, changes on the ESG. So there was a lot of uncertainty over which technologies would be used in the future to, to power the, the boats. And therefore, during that period, there was a bit of a hiatus on shipbuilding because if you're building something with a 25 year life and you don't know what the rules are going to be in a year's time, that's a pretty big disincentive for putting an order into to build a container ship, for example. So we had a shortage of supply. And then post COVID, we had this massive bounce in, in demand as all of the heroic amounts of stimulus, you know, fiscal and monetary stimulus pumped in the system caused the economy to, to bounce sharply. And, you know, shipping rates went through the roof and Tufton was getting phenomenal amounts of money for its um, leases. 
We just felt that that had got as good as it was ever going to get and that in the medium to longer term, there would be more ships built and it'll take time to, to get over the, um, the hiatus we've had over the last couple of years. But we just felt it's as good as it got. And what we're really focusing on is the unlooked and overloved. And shipping got pretty hot. And I think that's the important point of the sector. There's been so many asset classes that you can buy in the sector. There's always something that's hot, like shipping has been up until recently. And uh, there's always something that's completely cold, like biotechnology, which had, you know, been through couple of bear markets over the uh, over the last couple of years. So, yeah, I mean, it's not that we felt anything was going to go wrong with Tufton. It's just the opportunity cost of, of other other stuff that's around that's that's friendless. Okay, and that one also the discounts have started to widen that one as well. So uh, yeah, and, and you've got the best of the rise at least. Mm-hmm. Okay, now quickly we want to talk about two more things. I think one is uh, you mentioned before about debt trusts. Now that's not something mm. we talk about very often because they tend not to be of particular interest to the. The retail investor that you've uh, you mentioned already, and there's quite a, a number of trusts there, and they're often quite difficult to to distinguish and to work out exactly uh, how they're going to perform over time. But we have had some results this week from uh, GCP asset-backed income, for example, which was, had reports a small less than one percent decline in NAV over the, the last quarter, thirtieth of June. We've heard from Biopharma Credit uh, ticker BPCR, which is. Uh, amending and waiving certain provisions in its loan agreements, one of its uh, companies it lends to. And then we've also uh, heard from NB Global Monthly Income Fund, which has updated its full-year dividend target to 6.75% of NAV for the remainder of this year. So this is a sector which uh, requires some specialist knowledge. How do you approach this sector and uh, what are you looking for and where are you uh, invested in this one? We don't have much. But we have been looking at it recently because this is an area that's seen some sort of, you know, very, very steep falls. And um, the most recent purchase comes in this sector as well. I think it's important to spend some time with the managers to try and work out where the risks are because they're lending often quite a concentrated portfolio of loans to, to often small and medium-sized companies. So there's a lot more risk involved here. And it's much more difficult to value. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why on a slightly different front, the early stage companies or the early stage venture companies have been difficult to value. I think here the, the you know these companies are difficult to value. And something's difficult to value when when risk tolerance is absolutely zero as it is at the moment. Um, there's very little demand for those shares. So we have seen some situations where you know they've been trading out on a on a 30 or discount. And of course if they're high yielders anyway and high yielders at, at NAV, they're going to be extraordinary high yielders. You know, given if you're if you're entering at maybe you know paying sixty six in the pound for for your stake in the portfolio, so it is it is an area where we're we're looking around a bit at the moment, and it you know it is an area that chucks out quite a bit of income, and and you know one of the two of the ones we're looking at at the moment have extraordinarily high yields. They're all completely covered by cash flow from the from the underlying portfolio. Is this in direct lending or which, which sectors of the of the debt market are you looking? Well, these would be more direct lenders, or then the classifications seem to be a bit hit and miss, really. Yeah, I mean, they're not classified as direct lenders, but that's effectively what they do. Yeah, so you're saying, what you're saying, am I looking at Biopharma Credit and GCP Asset mm. Bank yeah. Income? I mean, they're both, uh, on the face of it, uh, offering a yield of, uh, well, north of 7% or so, mm. which is yeah. uh, quite handy, even in a, an inflationary mm. environment. Um, yeah. And I guess there's also, you have to look quite closely at whether the kind of loans they do are fixed rate or floating rate and so on, all that kind of stuff. Exactly, and, and some of the things we're focusing on at the moment are floating rates. So obviously their revenue is actually going up and their ability to pay those dividends is going up. Which can't be a bad thing in this context, mm. yeah. yeah. So uh, do you think they suffer generally as a sector, though, from the fact that they are 
quite difficult to analyze. Um, yeah. I mean, the risks really are down to sort of individual companies that they've lent to. And trying to understand that involves um, quite a lot of work. And even then, you may not totally succeed. So, yeah, I think that that, that dissuades a lot of people from, um, from, from getting involved in those vehicles. Okay, so we're coming to the end now of this week's podcast. Nick, I wanted to just ask you, um, you've mentioned uh, by implication one or two of the things that you've been doing, but uh, uh, have you added any new positions that you can talk about in the last, say, last three months? And if so, what are they? And uh, what was your thinking behind those uh, those changes? Well, not a lot that we haven't really already spoken about, really. I said biotechnology, um, just to flush out that. I mean, aircraft leasing we spoke about. Direct lender, we can't talk about because it's not declared. But, I mean, we did, we did mention in the last fact sheet that um, we've been buying into biotechnology. And it's, it's an interesting area because over the last couple of years, it's suffered because a lot of branches of medicine have seen resources diverted away to fighting COVID. So, therefore, if you're developing a treatment for a, for a rare disease or whatever, you may well find that the, your profits are delayed you know not not cancelled you know it, it might be delaying projects six months 12 months 18 months and that has undermined share prices and then because it's perceived as long duration assets when we had the great rotation out of growth into value they got absolutely hit and then finally you know the democrats have been talking a lot about restricting or, or fixing drug prices doesn't really affect biotech it's more of a problem for big pharma because the hope is, or the intention is, that the the government won't hurt innovation. But there's there's a fear. There's a lot of fear in markets anyway. So if you've got another imponderable that you know, there might be pricing controls introduced, that's called yet another sag in the um, in the valuation of biotech. So I think you know, last time I looked, we had probably 150 to 200 biotech stocks that were now trading below cash. Now obviously that cash is going to be spent to develop the drugs, but it basically means in all these situations. That with a negative enterprise value, the, the market is valuing these projects as having a negative individual value, um, which probably isn't right. So yeah, it's it's a it's a sector that's friendless at the moment. Although it has been perking up a bit in the last month or so. And the one you own is uh, is what? We've got biotech growth and we've got international biotech. So they're trading on discounts, presumably, of some sort? Yeah, although both keep the discount quite tight. It's not really a discount story. Um, Biotech Growth, for example, tries to limit the discount to, to six. And it's been a, we've been able to buy it on seven, eights, and nines on Sundays intraday. But at least we do know that the, the, the discount is underpinned. We're not taking a discount risk in buying our, those shares at that, that level of discount. Indeed, good. So, well, finally then, Nick, uh, let's just uh, say from what you said earlier, obviously it's been a, a tough six months for, well, for most investors. And, uh, you know, anybody invested in smaller, less liquid investor trusts has uh, suffered perhaps disproportionately. But you've given some good arguments for why uh, investors perhaps at this point should be looking to the rest of the year with a bit more confidence. Would that be a fair summary of what you think? I mean, having said that, of course, you know, all equity investors have to be optimists, otherwise they wouldn't be in the game. But uh, what's your, your thought for the uh, where we go from here? Well, I think there could be another sell-off because interest rates are, are still rising. But I think that would be an opportunity to, to add. As I said, I think this whole process will take a much shorter period of time because when the markets break, the authorities will back off. But maybe, just maybe, there, there's so much um, pessimism in the market. As I said earlier, when you know people have to ask themselves when they last met a bull, um, that there is so much bad news in prices that um, maybe we did bottom in June. And maybe people will start worrying about holding too much cash. And when markets start running away without them, then you might get a panic to get in. So um, there is that optimistic scenario, which is you know a realistic possibility. But if we do get a further decline from here, in other words, we do enter a really 
more severe bear market. Do you think the investment trust sector, it would, will, what do you think would happen if that happened? I mean, we see a lot more consolidation, would we? Or, I mean, is it better prepared to deal with it than it might have been, say? Uh... I, yeah, I think if we have another lurch down, it will be a very short dated effect. It will in the short term cause discounts to widen again if there's a bit of selling. But it will all be over relatively quickly. I think that that's where we differ from the consensus that this, this process, although it may be more brutal than some people expect in time, because you know raising interest rates has such a massive effect compared to what it did in most of my um, uh, my working career. So, um, so I think the investment trust sector wouldn't have time to evolve on something that's a relatively short dated um, uh, phenomenon. Well, let's hope so. That uh, brings us to the end of this week's podcast. I'm very grateful to you, Nick, uh, for joining me in this particular episode. Uh, that's been Nick Greenwood, the manager of the MyGo Opportunities Trust. That's all for this week. And uh, next week, we will have a different speaker to join me for the podcast. And I hope to uh, speak to you then. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.